Welcome to Warpod, a podcast brought to you by Safer World, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. In this episode, we look at the concept of stabilisation. Where does it come from? How is it interpreted? Who uses it? And for what purposes? I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. And I'm Delina Gojo, Associate Fellow at Egmont and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. In this episode, we speak to Philip Rotman, a director of the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin, where he works on peace and security, and Jordan Kane, a senior analyst at the US program's Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. So to kick this off, I would like to ask a question to you both, um, which is, what is stabilization to you? So which definition do you find the most pertinent for this word? Philip? Thank you so much for having me, Delina and Abby. What is stabilization to me? I think what I've found, always found the biggest benefit from using this term was that it helped uh, move the conversation uh, away from maximalist goals such as, such as state building or building peace uh, and direct attention instead to the fact that um, that we need less ambitious, more realistic goals for these attempts to intervene as outsiders in very complicated societies um, where there are lots of, of problems, which which is the original reason why we feel compelled to do anything about them in the first place. Um, so I think it's, or at least it can be, stabilization can be a label that helps us be realistic about what we can achieve. Uh, I think my perspective is quite, is a bit different from uh, the American side in that my SIGAR's mandate is to cover uh, solely Afghanistan. And so having looked primarily at Afghanistan, the US intervention in Afghanistan during the surge uh, and, the, and the few years following the surge, the US definition of stabilization in that context was clear hold build. So it was pretty far, I think, from the maximalist definition, uh, European definition that you're outlining. It started with sending in a team of coalition and Afghan troops to clear an area, or I suppose American troops to clear an area of Taliban, uh, and then theoretically to hold that area long enough to start to build an alternative legitimate governance service provision. Um, and then eventually a stage which we've never really got to of hold in which these new systems really take root. Um, and one finding of our 2018 stabilization report was that the the actual U.S. definition of stabilization, which is much more nuanced and involves uh, addressing inequalities in a predatory government, was never really something that we implemented uh, because what we did was tend to clear an area and then leave it before real progress was made and then clear another area such that it became euphemistically referred to as mowing the grass. Thanks very much, both of you. It would be interesting. I mean, you've started to unpick some of this as you were exploring the definitions. We've all moved towards 
using the term stabilization. What are the benefits of that and what are the potential drawbacks of using the label stabilization for different missions? Jordan, do you, do you want to jump on that first? I think one thing I would say is in the US context, there is at the moment evidence of how poorly our, the war in Afghanistan, the stabilization effort in Afghanistan was going, a tendency to try to avoid using the word at all. And we saw this during the surge or after the surge in 20, I guess 2009 to 2011, which was a denial that we would ever do it again and sort of a view of stabilization as a bad word. And we at Seeker have pushed back on that saying in the last 50 years, the US has undertaken three large scale stabilization campaigns in Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan. And so while it may be an excruciatingly difficult thing to do well uh, or to succeed at, and while the average counterinsurgency campaign may last 14 years, I think that was a rand estimate, it's, it is something that we have to continue to grapple with. Um, but I think what you were asking had more to do with the way that the term stabilization can mean so many different things to so many different people and end up resulting in even under the, the umbrella of the same country, much less across national lines, different entities uh, defining it differently and working at cross purposes. And we absolutely have seen that. I guess I would just caution that throwing the baby out with the bathwater is something we push back on in terms of trying to get the U.S. to retain the capabilities it will need to continue to conduct stabilization, either large scale or small scale around the world. Uh, we're, we're engaged at any given time in so many stabilization campaigns, um, Somalia, you know, Ukraine, these things. I very much agree, Jordan, and I think, but but you did put your finger onto some of the problems, right? That stabilization, I feel, hasn't made it easier to really identify what the core of the problem is, what the core of the goals are that we're after in, in these countries. At least previously, when we were talking, if, you know, over ambitiously and somewhat arrogantly about building states, we knew what a state looks like and we could easily identify and cigar has made great contributions to that identify where the deficiencies are right where are we in terms of good governance in afghanistan at any given point where would we like to be and what is the delta uh, and why while with stabilization it seems as if you know anything is uh, you know anything can be sold as progress and it's quite unclear uh, how much stability uh, is enough since uh, everybody seems to agree that stability is also very much a term that has lots of, of problems, right? We don't want dictatorial stability or repressive stability. At least we don't want to support that uh, if we can avoid it. So what is really the goal and when do we know that we've achieved it? That question hasn't really become any easier. But at the same time, I don't really see uh, what other term can be so much more helpful. I mean, in Germany, we've begun to discuss a little bit, should we call these things something like integrated peace something, integrated peace building. But there again, if you take a strong view of peace, which has a lot to speak for itself, to, to speak for it, then uh, you will never succeed either. And you will, it will never help you. This kind of terminology will never help you prioritize. And so we're kind of going in circles. So we will go back to Sigar in the next session because I think it's really important to, to unpick that more. But I want to use the Sahel as a case study here and 
this idea of timing, which is something that I believe is fundamental. So the French view stabilization as something that happens only after an area is cleared of terrorist armed groups, uh, otherwise it's too difficult to set up humanitarian or development projects. Um, whereas the Germans prefer to tackle the issue in a more integrated way. Which approach do you think works better, Philip? Because I think it's important to, to be talking about the Sahel currently, and I know you've done work on this. Thank you, Delina. Yeah, well, I would challenge the premise of, of the question. I don't think that Germans are any more able to, to kind of implement humanitarian or development projects in areas where there is active fighting going on. Maybe there are humanitarian projects in areas effectively controlled by terrorist armed groups here and there. Maybe there are projects going on, humanitarian projects in areas effectively controlled by terrorist armed groups, but that's uh, also not uh, specific uh, to Germany. I think the key question or the key difference is not not on the level of implementing projects, but on the level of, of politics, the politics of stabilization. Uh, Germans, I think, have been much more supportive to those local voices, to Malians, Malian civil society activists, but also Malian people pushing for talks with some of these jihadi groups, much more supportive to support these talks than the French have. But that's an answer to a different questions, which is an important question. Is that an ideological? Is that a conceptual difference about what stabilization means? Or is it simply the result of the fact that on the one hand, the French don't have the money or the manpower to do a lot of this civilian stabilization programming the Germans are funding? And that B, that in the French case, the military just drives their policy toward the Sahel and the diplomats are just playing second fiddle. I think what they present as their approach to stabilization, both of them, the Germans and the French, is much more the product of these you know, institutional facts, what type of money do you have and who is in charge, than it is the product of a kind of deeply thought through ideological difference. But bureaucracy aside, I think the key point is who's legitimate uh, locally the sense of a right to rule that's sufficiently accepted by the local population at a very, very local level in every town, in every village? Or are those that try to govern or that claim to have the right to rule so illegitimate that people effectively support or are easily mobilized in support, intimidated into supporting a rebel group? It's very clear that stabilization or whatever we call it can only work in support of an accepted authority. And plenty of the armed groups in the Sahel, for all their failings and brutality, are the only thing some of the people in these remote regions have in terms of people that have something to do with their own communities that come from the same ethnic groups, share some religious links, etc., that want to govern them. Because the central state, in Mali's case, for example, the government in Bamako certainly does not want to govern these people in the peripheries. And stabilization basically says the local players need to resolve this political question. Internationals cannot just build effective authority on behalf of disinterested local elites a thousand kilometers away in the capital and against the violence committed by local rebel groups. That doesn't work. So if there is a group that wants to govern in a place and if it is accepted by the population there, 
yes, if it is an illegitimate and violent terrorist group, it needs to be displaced by military means. But if it is not illegitimate, if it has some legitimacy, if it is reasonably moderate in how it governs, then you can support it and support the population with development projects, stabilization projects, but only then. No outsider can solve this political struggle for the people in place. Thanks, Philip, for, for clarifying uh, the legitimacy component of it. I think it is really important for it to be mentioned. Because to me, it also feels like some of what you were saying in your original answer, Philip, that the, the stabilization rhetoric takes us away from a maximalist approach, which I agree is never realistic if you don't put the resources in and it shouldn't be and can't be internationally driven anyway. But then in, in some of the same places that you've spoken about, we have seen that the military approach can perpetuate violence when state forces are the main driver of civilian harm, for instance. And I worry sometimes that the label of stabilization takes us too far from a maximalist approach, where it becomes too short term and we end up propping up the very authoritarian leaders that can be causing more more civilian harm in the long term. I wonder what what's the price of focusing on stabilization away from, from peace building? Yeah, that's a very serious uh, concern and I share that very much. I mean, ultimately, there's a limited number of actors to, to work with and to choose from, right? And this short-term problem is very much, is, is usually deeply ingrained in, in local politics, which is part of the original reason why we feel compelled for our own reasons to try to, uh, you know, reduce the risk of terrorist attacks or, or control migration or whatever it is to intervene in these places. I mean, this idea of instability, organized violence or political rule or political control is by definition or, or comes with the fact that all the key local players, all the key power brokers only think in the short term. And peace building approaches try to teach them or try to push them, try to help them build trust toward uh, thinking in a longer term perspective beyond their own short term survival but that's also the the hard stuff right that's what fails so often and that what takes what takes so long and what is so easily uh, destroyed again with every new flare-up of violence every provocation and miscalculation so i think there's just no way around the fact that any anything like stabilization or conflict management or conflict resolution needs to start at these short-term things with short-term goals to start to gain traction, to build very, very small levels of, of trust. And then, yes, it does need, you know, you need to build on that, but you can only go beyond these, these short-term things. Stabilization as a concept doesn't emphasize an ambitious end goal and that, that has the, carries the risk that interveners or donors get stuck in an endless loop of short-term stuff. But the propping up of authoritarians, I'm not, I don't think is, is, is the product of stabilization. Where we do it is the product of geopolitics. So, and that's coming up again now right? with, the, with the West and, and Russia and, and China being increasingly in conflict, that there are the voices arguing that we need to get back in the game, into the game, uh, of competing for the allegiance of you know something like the junta in Mali, 
Right now we aren't uh, yet, but uh, there is the risk that we prop up repressive authoritarian leaders for geopolitical reasons, and we have done lots of propping up repressive leadership in the name of counterterrorism. I'm not so sure that, that stabilization has been the main driving force in that regard. I would like to, to move on to another case study now. And as we said, I think it'd be interesting for Jordan if you could briefly discuss Sigar's findings about the U.S. stabilization efforts in Afghanistan. First, the U.S. strategy in Afghanistan was poorly defined, internally inconsistent, and suffered from mission creep over time until, at one point, our strategy sought to do nothing less than to overhaul Afghan society and rebuild from scratch, uh, often in our own image, uh, Afghan society and the government from the bottom up. We found that a narrower focus on building the capacity of the Afghan government to provide uh, targeted basic services had a better chance of being successful, most especially civilian security and dispute resolution. And one reason our strategy suffered was that the agency tasked with leading U.S. government's stabilization strategies simply doesn't have the staff or the resources to do so effectively. Actually, I would say it was both USAID and the State Department were so woefully under-resourced and understaffed uh, going into the surge in Afghanistan that instead of, as is required under U.S. doctrine, the State Department taking the lead on policy and strategy and USAID taking the lead on implementation, both agencies, uh, the whole strategy was dictated by the Department of Defense, which had a very short-term approach. Uh, and so then you had this peace-building strategy trying to get the local actors to take a longer-term approach totally undermined uh, by the, the Defense Department's short-term strategy to find and defeat the Taliban and then immediately bring in stabilization sorts of activities for a very short period in a way that was unsuccessful and quite frankly counterproductive. Next, the U.S. was always about to leave. We announced that we were starting to withdraw in 2011, a decade before we actually did. And so as a result, the fact that we were constantly a year or two away from getting out led to perverse and pervasive short-term incentives for both Americans and Afghans. The average successful counterinsurgency, according to RAND, lasts 14 years, but our uh, surge, the, the period that the U.S. was supposed to surge and then leave was only 18 months. And even after that, we were still theoretically only a year or two from leaving all the way to the end. And to even have a, a hope of a successful counterinsurgency requires a long-term commitment. These short timelines fueled excessive spending that fed corruption, but they also disincentivized our Afghan allies from supporting government reform, which was unrealistic when we were uh, only going to stay a few more years at the very best. And lastly, the U.S. was consistently dishonest about with itself and with the, with the public about what was being accomplished and what was working and what wasn't. And without internal honesty about whether progress was being made or about what strategies and approaches are working and which, which are not, there's, it's impossible to troubleshoot or to adjust your strategy. And as a result, we scored a lot of own goals. This particular aspect of the failure reminds me of the way that the Soviet suppression of bad news at Chernobyl ensured that the disaster got out of control. As Inspector General Sopko has said, we exaggerated. Our generals did, our ambassadors did, all of our officials did. 
to Congress and to the American people about how we were just now turning a corner. Well, we turned that corner so many times, we did a 360. We were like a top spinning. Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course, yeah. I, I share a lot of this analysis with regard to the, to the poorly defined, internally inconsistent goals, the lack of transparency and honesty. But I wonder about the question of short-term versus long-term goals and timelines. The short timelines that drove a lot of programming, and that's not this, just the case for the American programming, uh, fueled excessive spending that fed corruption. I can, I think I, I can see a lot of examples of that. But then uh, you use the example of the 10-year uh, announcement basically to leave, right? That there was in 2014 um, an, a political pronouncement that there's going to be another 10 years or so of serious support and then the international community would slowly uh, withdraw. Uh, wasn't that an example of a, of a, of a, of a relatively long-term commitment that was only in practice undermined by President Trump and his deals with the, with the Taliban uh, rather than the, uh, the Western kind of policy pronouncement and implementation between 2014 and the Trump administration. Jordan, did you want to come back on that? Yes, I was going to say that even during the surge, there was a short-term time horizon. Even while we were sending in 100,000 troops and making and, and hiring as quickly as we could, as increasing our civilian staff as well in Afghanistan and massively increasing our funding for stabilization and for the Afghan government, we said that it was going to be a short-term investment. And even while we rhetorically kept saying that we would continue to fund the Afghan government, we weren't providing that continued troop presence to provide physical security, which Seeger has found is instrumental to, to anything else. Um, you can't conduct an effective stabilization campaign when you're actively fighting for physical control of an area. And, and I would define that expansively as not just during the day when those troops are out and about on foot patrol, but also at night. So even while there was this commitment to continue to fund the government, there were not commitments to the enablers that were necessary for physical security. And in part, I would say that that was because we didn't define where we could provide that physical security narrowly and realistically. We hopscotched all over the map instead of providing committing to an enduring presence or an enduring enduring levels of support for enablers that the Afghans could provide that security in a limited number of geographic areas in a way that might have that what would have been more realistic and, and might have had a higher likelihood of success. And the other part of your analysis that I, I like very much and I see echoing in a lot of European countries as well as the uh, huge problem with staff shortage. On the, especially on the civilian side and in terms of political stabilization, implementation and leadership. Is that something with the Global Fragility Act that you see the US government really tackling or being able to tackle? I would really love to be wrong about this. Let me start by saying that because the Global Fragility Act was a real win for revolutionizing or reforming the way that the US approaches conflict prevention and stabilization. I do think that it will get 
our agencies on the same page to a degree to a greater degree. I think it's a fab it's fabulous that there's an acknowledgement of the need to make a 10 year plan and a 10 year investment in a limited number of priority countries. That said, CIGAR's primary concern, and, and we've told this directly to USAID and state and to uh, Congress and, and two of the five pilot countries, although one is a region really, uh, is that it's an unfunded, it's largely an unfunded mandate or a series a long list, a laundry list of unfunded mandates. The Global Fragility Act identifies a lot of the same areas of pain points for impediments to U.S. stabilization policy that CIGAR has, and in that sense, it's very encouraging. But it does not provide significant additional resources, either for programming or for staffing, to accomplish those goals. Um, for example, we recently spoke with the Libyan External Office, which is the U.S. Embassy for Libya uh, in exile. They're, they're based in Tunisia. And they told us that they've been told to expect $10 million a year with a potential additional five for this you know, nationwide peace building stabilization strategy. But even more problematic than that, um, and to your point, one of the two new funds, I guess one of them is repurposed, but peace building and stabilization funds established by the bill and funded by the bill actually says that only, I think it's five or 10% of the funding can be spent on administ for administrative purposes. And that's just enormously counterproductive because peace building and stabilization takes an enormous degree of knowledge of the context and nuance. And without significant additional staff, it's unrealistic to believe that the staff already tasked with these responsibilities can take that on. For example, we were told recently by the USAID Bureau responsible for implementing GFA that they were really struggling to get the implementers to be able to attend a two-hour training on the Global Fragility Act. So if you think about that, if they don't have time to add a two-hour training to their long list of responsibilities, they certainly don't have time to add the long list of actual components of, the, of implementing the GFA that they've been assigned. That echoes a lot of the findings that we've made recently in a, in a study on prevention, where we found that, that the, the big four prevention spenders, um, conflict prevention spenders, which are Germany, the US, the United Kingdom, and the European Union, have a lot of trouble getting this money prioritized and focused on countries where it even stands a chance of having a political impact. And the, the resulting picture that we have is rather that there is a small, small kind of sprinkling of these types of programs that are barely worth a few million dollars or euros a year on each particular country, similar to your Libya example, while basically there is no reaction to very specific warnings or information and analysis about particular escalation. Risks. I was wondering, though, while I did make this argument myself, that that five or ten million a year is unlikely to um, have a political impact in a country like Libya. I, I was wondering what a good standard would be to measure this against. Did you guys at, at Cigar? Did you did you do any math? Did you work on on any statistics to kind of try to come up with a benchmark of what uh, you know what what kind of money do you need to take? to have some sort of a political impact on a country with a prevention or conflict resolution strategy? 
Uh, that's a very fair question. And I have to say that I would have to get back to you, would have to spend more time on that. I mean, certainly 10 million is, is not nothing. And to focus it on this more limited group of countries with a more intentional strategy is progress. I should restate that. And, and particularly because if you know anything about domestic politics in the US, to have passed a standalone piece of legislation on this subject that was passed in a bipartisan fashion, it was a huge political win, I think. Um, acknowledgement of the seriousness of the problem and, and really impressive for those of us in this community. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's time to declare, to declare it a win. I think the concern is that Congress will pat itself on the back and say mission accomplished, as opposed to engaging in earnest in figuring out where the resources, authorities, and, and bureaucratic hurdles are to getting it right. Um, one thing that's really encouraging about the Global Fragility Act is that it explicitly contains ta uh, text asking the agencies to provide feedback on all of those hurdles. I don't have the exact language in front of me, but it, it has to do with resourcing challenges and authority, authorities' challenges in specific. So I think it sort of remains to be seen how much Congress will actually be able to change or, or to eliminate those barriers and, and how robust that dialogue will be. For example, these are 10-year strategies that these regions, uh, that these countries and then the region of West Africa are putting together, but the funding for the civilian agencies for state and aid is generally one-year funding. Um, and so then you have the risk of this drought and flood cycle whereby the problem set is, is may have a, a theoretical 10-year strategy, but isn't able to sustain that because funding flows are changing. That's one potential problem. And then, of course, the, the staffing issue. I know that the countries are looking at creative solutions like hiring an eligible family member, a spouse of, of a diplomat or a, a development worker, or hiring someone in DC to do surge support. But they're not easy answers given the existing limitations. I sort of want to let you two keep going. <laughs> um, but maybe just just to finish, we've, we've already started to go into some of this with, with your answers so far. But I guess the final question I'd like to know for policymakers grappling with the problems and challenges surrounding stabilization, both in terms of its terms and its implementations, what's the, the first thing that they should do to start to address some of the challenges that you've laid out in the podcast? I would say very clearly invest in very, very good knowledge of the local context. And that means staff and it means uh, local staff also, not just uh, nationals of your own country, Germans or Americans or Brits, but also people from the societies we're talking about uh, who can move on the, on the ground, who, who can speak for the concerns of the populations, but really human brain power, man and woman power to inform the choices that, that you're making. That should be the, the number one investment priority. I wholeheartedly agree with the recommendation of investing in local staff. Um, I worked for years in South Sudan with a implementing partner team that had a really fabulous local staff and had retained them over because they'd won multiple contracts. So, you know, that's a, a barrier to continuity is, is the length of our contracting and the length of our funding cycles. But because they had retained these local staff over years and promoted them and sort of built this local team, it lessened 
it made it less problematic that you didn't have enough people in USAID to understand the context if they could, you know, wholeheartedly rely on their their local counterparts. But regarding the largest solution, um, I think in addition to what I said earlier about resourcing the Global Fragility Act strategies, it behooves Congress to examine their own role in undermining stabilization effectiveness, particularly as we're not yet a full year after the fall of the Afghan government. We met recently with a congressional committee, and I was a bit startled to hear a senior professional staffer, someone who's really at the top of their game and, and in a position to influence policies that, that determine the effectiveness of stabilization and peace building strategies, deny that he and his colleagues had any role to play in pressuring agencies to spend more money faster and to just demonstrate results on unrealistic timelines. I don't know enough about the European context to know if this is also an issue, but I'm guessing that it is. The politicization of results frameworks, uh, I guess that's an inside baseball term, but of, of the way that your that agencies assess their effectiveness in programs tends to push them to do things for the sake of doing them so that they can count the outcomes, count the schools built, as opposed to taking a nuanced look at the outcomes. Uh, the outputs as opposed to the outcomes, like whether anyone's learning in those schools. But in a stabilization comp context, the theory of change is really long and complicated. The ultimate thing that you're trying to assess is whether the students learning in those schools are improving the legitimacy of the government, right? Or whether the Afghan people understand that it's an implementing partner doing all of the work and are not, it's not changing the sort of calculus of, of who the population would support. So I would, I would ask Congress to not just look at how they need to empower the agencies under the Global Fragility Act to Im improve their ability to conduct stabilization, but how Congress itself needs to value learning within the agencies. Has a stabilization program learned how to do things better through honesty about what worked, um, as opposed to are they you know, producing numerical outputs that look good on paper? I think that's a great message to end on. So thank you, Philip and Jordan. That's all we have time for today. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Until next time, from me, Abigail Watson, and Alina Godjo, goodbye. Warpod from Safer World. You can listen to all previous episodes and catch the latest releases every month, wherever you get your podcasts, by searching for and following Warpod. And to find out more about our work at Safer World, please visit saferworld.org.uk. Safer